This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to C.L. Fornari, author of many garden articles and books, including her most recent, which is Coffee for Roses. Um, she's also a great gardening speaker, master gardener, hosts not one but two radio shows. C.L., I don't know how you can do all that. <laughs> well, I do keep many balls in the air, but it's also related. It, it's all revolving around a passion for plants and, you know, helping to share that excitement with other people. Is that why you decided to write? Yes. I, I never intended to be a garden writer, actually. Um, I was, in my youth, an artist, and all I wanted to do was go into the studio and make stuff. But I, I did use my camera, and I've always been a gardener, so at one point I tried to convince a publisher to do a book of my photographs of gardens, and he knew I was a gardener myself, and he said, well, we can't afford to do a book of full-color photographs, but would you like to write a book of general garden advice? And my theory was that if a publisher asks if you'd like to write a book, the answer should probably be yes. So <laughs> that's what started me down the road. You know, so the universe kind of pulled me into the world of being a garden communicator, and that first book led to speaking and the radio and everything else. Isn't it amazing how things go like that? Now, did you grow up, did you grow up gardening? Um, I yes and yes I did I not uh, as a child my mother when I was home had five kids she didn't have too much time for gardening so I didn't do it certainly as a child but um, I was fortunate to be a child at a time when kids were pushed outside and told not to come back until mealtime. <laughs> and so we had to make our fun in the natural world you know and we. Mm -hmm. We spent time up in trees, and we spent time under bushes, and we spent time stealing the neighbor's flowers and, you know, all of those things. And I think that's what led me to become a gardener is that, that sense of joy and experimentation with plants. You know, it sounds like you and I had the same childhood. <laughs> we were <laughs> blessed. We were we so were. blessed. Yeah. And and I feel really bad for kids growing up today that don't have the opportunity to be outside as we were. Oh, absolutely. And, it, you know, I mean, in some, some kind of communities, it's almost against the law to let your kids, you know, roam the block by themselves. And uh, it's, it's such a shame because having that freedom to poke around in the natural world and to turn over a rock and see what's there, uh, it, it's really a wonderful thing, and it really excites, I think, a, a child's curiosity about the world that we live in. 
Oh, sure. Spending an afternoon watching ants and seeing what they carry off to eat and oh yeah and how they how they make trails and how if one <laughs> ant goes around like a little rock on the ground um, all the ants even if you pick up the rock all the other ants will follow right along where the other ant took the detour you did have the same childhood <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am pleased to say that there is a little town in Wisconsin where kids still are allowed to do that. There are probably many little towns, but I know of one of them um, that my dad grew up in. And when I would take him back to visit his sister, who still lived there, um, the kids were out playing. They would be riding their bikes down the street. The dog would be chasing after the kids on the bikes. They would be out, you know, in the the woods, because, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of little woods in, in Wisconsin. They're playing in the creeks, all that neat stuff that we did, too. Yes. No, I think it does. It, it certainly does go on um, in a lot of America, and, and that's heartening, isn't it? I, it's heartening, but it's disheartening when I see the kids, you know, that are just shoved off to soccer practice and music lessons. And, of course, we had music lessons, too, when I was a kid. And my mother tried to get me to be a little bit more coordinated by taking me to ballet lessons for a little while mm-hmm. until the ballet instructor said it was pretty hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> but shame on that instructor. Shame well, I, 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 uh, I was flexible, but not very graceful. <laughs> but so, so we had the chance to do things, and kids today are very much programmed, and I feel sorry for them that they have to have to endure that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can. Uh, what we can do is encourage various programs that uh, continue to get kids involved in plants, like school gardens and and the various uh, scout troops and and that sort of thing. So. Absolutely. I think the and, and if anyone needs some information on gardening with kids or doing schoolyard gardens, I've got a lot of it. Because at one time, I had four. I had over a thousand kids in four different schools. Fabulous. My first, my first master gardener project. Yeah, and, that's and it was just wonderful. We had the K through five kids, and the kids would eat. You know, even if they say, "Well, I would never touch spinach or turnip greens or something like that," once they'd eaten it, it was the most wonderful thing in the world for them. Yeah, and and a child will, will pick something out of the garden that they grew and eat it far more readily than they will something that's, you know, just put on their plate um, from the supermarket. And, frankly, uh, the, the vegetables that we grow in our garden have so much more flavor that, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's the perfect way to get kids to eat their vegetables. I think you're right. Both of my nephews grew up with gardening parents, and they eat I, I was surprised because, you know, I always expected kids to be picky eaters, but they were eating everything, mm-hmm. anything green. And now one of them lives up in Alaska, and they go down to the grocery store, and they'll buy an apple, and if it's any good, they'll go back in and buy, buy lots and lots more <laughs> uh, because they crave the vegetables and the fruit. Right. Now, right. <clears throat> your latest book is called Coffee for Roses and 70 Other Misleading Myths About Backyard Gardening. How did you come up with Coffee for Roses for a title? Well, it, it's, that's a funny story because when I agreed to do this book, I'd, I'd been giving a talk for years called Myths, Lies, and All the Latest Dirt. And the publisher thought that that was too long a title. And he wanted the, the title of the book to say exactly what the book was about 
so that there wouldn't be any confusion, and he wanted to call it Garden Myths. And he's the publisher, so I'm willing to go along. You know, he knows about marketing books. So it, they designed a cover. It was called Garden Myths. We were all set to go, and he took the cover with that title to his sales force and presented it, and they said, the title is boring. <laughs> Come up with something else. So he came back to me and he said, well, pick a few of the myths that are in the book and you know, see what you think about a title from one of the myths. And the two that I liked best was Coffee for Roses and Gum for Groundhogs. And we decided to call it Coffee for Roses because... People love coffee, and they love roses, and so we thought that that would be a memorable title. I, I think it is memorable. When I first saw it, I said, what the heck is that all about? <laughs> when, when the publicity came out, and then I did a little bit more reading, and I said, hey, that is really cool. Well, and I thank love you. the cover on the book, too, because you've got, you've got the roses sitting in a little pot. Yes, I've, I've got that's a, an old coffee tin, a vintage coffee tin that I have. And uh, when we were discussing the cover, the the publisher said, well, can you make roses come out of that tin that I saw a picture of? And I said, absolutely. Photoshop, anything is possible. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the roses got, got put in the coffee tin. Unfortunately, some people think it's a book about roses without and don't realize that it's a book about all aspects of gardening and the myths involved, whether it's shrubs and trees or vegetables uh, or potted plants. Well, all they have to do is read the second line of the title, the 70 other misleading myths about backyard gardening. Well, that's what I thought, too, but apparently not. <laughs> well, there are some people that don't read the directions on cans of spray and stuff, too. So There you go. I guess we can't. Even when it's a matter of life and death, they don't read it. That's right. Why do you suppose that myths are so popular and so persistent? Well, I think one reason that they are is some of them are kind of fun. And so being fun and quirky, that sticks in our brains. I, I believe that humans are hardwired in two different directions. One, we're hardwired to cling to what we know. And two, we're hardwired also to look for, be on the lookout for something kind of unusual. And it makes sense, you know, that our brains latch on to those two things because on the one hand, when we find a food source, we want to be able to go back to that food source again and again. So that serves our survival. But also, if that usual food source dries up, for our survival, we need to be open to something that might be an unusual you know, unusual source of food. And, and so that's the reason I think that the first person tried to eat an oyster or an artichoke or, you know, uh, something that's uh, very, uh, you know, m maybe quirky the first time you see it. So, so I think that that's one reason we remember myths is that some of them are quirky, but a lot of them also have to do with what we already know. We already know about coffee, and we already know roses, and so putting those two things together um, and the, the quirkiness of throwing your coffee grounds out around your rose bushes, that's appealing to people. Well, and at least that's one of the things that they can do that's not going to hurt them or the roses. No, it is 
isn't, and as I say in the book, there's nothing wrong with coffee for roses. Roses love organic matter. Coffee is organic matter. Go right ahead, you know. Um, but it could be tea bags as well. Uh, it could be, you know, your composted oak leaves or your, you know, composted uh, leftover cheese sandwiches. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it, it's as long as it's organic matter, that's going to make a rose happy. So nothing wrong with the with the coffee, but there's no particular rose woo-woo there either. And I suppose that that's the same for those people that like to throw banana peels out underneath their roses. That's right. That's another myth is the banana peels for roses and eggshells for roses, those three things. And how, how the breakfast foods won out for the rose bushes, I don't know. But um, And, you know, by all means, throw those out. But I, I think probably throwing those banana peels and eggshells and, and coffee grounds uh, might, you know, detract a little bit from the attractiveness of the roses. So uh, I guess I would prefer to put all those things in my compost pile and let them rot a little first. Well, and with coffee grounds especially, if you get too many of them, once they dry, water won't penetrate. Yeah, they can make how I know this. Yeah, they they can make a crust. That's true. And I think um, there are some organic matter, particularly very fine materials. Sawdust will do the same thing, you know, So, which is why sawdust doesn't make a good mulch in the garden because it also will make a crust. But it's not anything about robbing the soil of nitrogen. Well, as long as something is high, something that's high carbon like sawdust, or even uh, chopped up leaves or branches, as long as it's on the surface of the soil, it does not take nitrogen out of the soil. That's another myth in the book. The, um, they take the nitrogen they need for decomposition mostly from the air in those circumstances. But if you take those that same sawdust, those same leaves, those same chopped up branches and dig them into the soil, you know, that same bark mulch, dig it all into the soil, then it would take the nitrogen that it's using for decomposition out of the soil. Great. So so we're going to take a little break right now, but we'll be back right after this. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note track and photograph your garden's progress personalize your weather and reminders get variety info grow guides hands-free dictation and more the homegrown with bonnie plants app the sharpest tool in your garden download it free on the app store this is america's webradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is C.L. Fornari, author of Coffee for Roses and 70 Other Misleading Myths About Backyard Gardening. C.L., I bet some of our listeners are wondering right now what C.L. stands for. Will you divulge the secret? Well, I have my radio audience convinced that it stands for compost lover, so I think we'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Well, and for a gardener, that's a good thing to be, too. Absolutely. Yeah, what are some of the other myths that you've found that are really hard to kill? 
Well, uh, let's let's talk about one that's for vegetable gardening, since many of your listeners are veggie fans, as I certainly am, and um, that is that. Uh, blossom end rot, which is the scab on the bottom of tomatoes, means that you have a calcium deficiency. And that myth originated because when they started testing plants that were producing tomatoes with blossom end rot, they found slightly lower calcium inside the vascular system of the tomatoes, which led to that conclusion. Unfortunately, that conclusion did not hold up under testing. Um, they jumped the gun a little bit. And it turns out that blossom end rot on the bottom of the tomatoes is a sign of stress. Um, and usually the stress comes from in, in uneven watering. But what we also see with tomatoes is that it most frequently happens when the plants are young. And so it's those very first tomatoes that might have Blossom end rot, that ugly black scab on the bottom of the fruit. And then the plants seem to grow out of it. So clearly there's something going on with these tomatoes when they're young that when either they're in a very windy situation or they're in a very hot situation or they are uh, drying up inconsistent watering in between, you know, the deep soakings, that's what produces blossom end rot on the tomatoes. And you don't have to dump all kinds of calcium in your soil. You know, cut the scab off those first couple tomatoes, eat them anyway, and water your plants, you know, deeply, fairly consistently, and you're going to be fine. And another tip for gardeners is I know it's very tempting to buy a plant that already has a little tomato on it when you go to the garden center, but those plants, unless they're in really big pots, don't have enough root mass to take up the, the nourishment that they need, either the water or the calcium and the mm-hmm. other nutrients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. So you might as well just kind of clip that new food off. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I'd like to recommend if the plant is really long and lanky, take off some of those blossoms too because you, the plant needs to be putting on roots to start with. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a very good tip. Now, one of the things that Craig LaHuyer and I were talking about, and we're convinced that the reason that um, plants, particularly determinate plants, of course, that have the problem so much more than indeterminate plants, mm-hmm. is probably because the plant is setting all that fruit at once, and again, it doesn't have the resources, the number of leaves, um, the number of roots, to support all of those at once. Could be, but I don't know. Uh, that's kind of speculation. At, at, at this point, they really don't know for sure, A, whether calcium plays any role in this or not, or if it's just that when a plant is under stress, it has lower calcium levels. And B, they don't really know exactly what kind of stress is you know is the is the trigger or if there are several triggers or if there are a combination of triggers for blossom end rot so so still still waiting for the science on all of that the last i read was that it was a problem with calcium transport to the end of the fruit 
Could be. I don't know. I don't I think know whether still, that yeah. has been. Yeah. I don't know whether that's been refuted, refuted or not. Um, but it seems like a reasonable assumption when you consider some of the other factors too, like you know, small root mass. Or for those mm-hmm. of us that grow tomatoes in containers, we have to be very careful to manage the watering and to use the largest container we can. Because, yes. as you mentioned, uneven watering is one of the big things that causes blossom end rot. That's right. And I think for people with containers, you know, I, I work in a garden center, and um, with containers, I learned early on that you can't just water them once because when when the soil in a pot starts to get dry, it pulls away from the edges of the containers. And so that first watering that you give that that plant tends to slide down in the slight gap in between the root ball and the pot. And the outside of that root ball will get watered, but the interior often does not. And so people who are growing tomatoes in in containers, not only is it important to use, as you say, the biggest container you, you can possibly get, but also water those plants once. Let them sit for a few minutes so that the soil starts to swell and then come back and water them again so that you know that you've got the interior of that root ball really well soaked. That's a really good point. It's, I was used to work helping a friend in her greenhouse, and we would go, when we were watering, we would go back and forth on different sides of the aisle so uh-huh. that we could make sure that everything was getting well soaked because as people have probably seen, just what you mentioned, the, the root mass, the Ponymix shrinks away from the sides of the container, and all the water runs down. That's right. The water runs out that way, and that initially, you know, it dampens the top and it dampens the sides, but it doesn't get the core of the root mass really damp. And uh, so coming back for a second round of, of container watering is always a good idea. And if people aren't sure, they can just poke their finger down, or or I would sometimes recommend for people that are a little fastidious or who have deep containers, using a pencil because a pencil, if you poke it down, um, you can tell where the where the dirt starts to give a little bit, mm-hmm. and it also the you know the pencil will come up moist. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So what other myths are really hard to, to battle? Well, while we're talking containers here, um, one of the ones that I learned as a new gardener, everybody learns, is that we're supposed to put a layer of rocks in the bottom of the pot for drainage. That's what, you know, that's the saying, for drainage, right? But it's, number one, unnecessary, number two, a nuisance, and number three, it's bad for plants. It is bad for plants. I don't know where this started. But, you know, it's a nuisance because if you go to repot something or if you go to empty that soil from your, your tomatoes into the compost or into your garden at the end of the season, you've got this layer of, you know, rocks or shards there. Uh, it's unnecessary because when it comes to drainage, that's what the hole in the bottom of the pot is for. And it's bad for plants because the roots don't stop when they get to that layer. They go down into the rocks, into the shards where there's no water, there's no nutrition, there's nothing there for the plants. And when you go into a garden center or a nursery, look around at the thousands of plants there 
There is not a rock or a shard in the bottom of any of those pots. There isn't a coffee filter over the drainage hole. There isn't a piece of screening over the drainage hole. There isn't a pebble or a seashell over the drainage hole because commercial growers know that anything in the bottom but soil is bad for plants and anything covering up the drainage hole is A, unnecessary, and B, impedes the drainage. So I don't know where this started for home gardeners, but, you know, isn't it time that we really open our eyes to the plants that we buy from professional growers and realize that what we've been doing is not only unnecessary, but it's kind of silly and stupid as well. <laughs> yeah, and it can, can actually impede the drainage because there's less, you know, you're changing the soil material. It's it bad, as, you know, it's just bad for plants. And, you know, it's, it's a hard one to kill because we all learned it. You know, um, my mother learned it. I think probably her mother learned it. And uh, people are still doing it. But that's one that we really do need to nip because uh, it's just, it's, it's not good for what we're growing in containers. And so many people want to grow more and more in pots and, and boxes. And so that's one we all have to spread the word about. Thank you. I'm so glad that you said that. And there are, I, I can put up, I'll find a link and put it up on our Facebook page about some research that shows exactly where the water goes when it's, uh, when it's not, when it's in a container that has the rocks in the bottom. Well, and, and you know, in, in my book, Coffee for Roses, you can see a picture of where the roots go. Uh, down in with the broken up clay shards. So, you know, that's it. You can see it in your own, own plants that you have in your house or, or out on your patio right now. Okay. Um, I think while we're talking about water, let's talk a little bit about watering and how often you should water. Well, uh, you know, it, with watering, what we need to always do is, first of all, think about how nature waters. And second of all, realize that when we are giving any plant a really thorough, deep soaking, whether it's that container-grown tomato or whether it's the vegetables in your garden, if you're soaking the soil down deeply, where are the roots going to go? Down deep, They're going to stay right? Down deep, yes. But if we're if we're watering frequently and shallowly, where are the roots going to be? In the top three inches of the soil, and and what's the stronger plant? Well, the plant with the good deep root system, of course. So I think the main way with vegetable gardens, people run amok with their watering. Well, it's twofold. One is hand watering, and the second is automatic irrigation systems. Um, people like to go out at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, squirt their plants with a hose, and it feels very satisfying. But the reality is that we humans get bored long before those plants get a good deep soaking if we're hand-watering. So hand-watering, yes, for containers uh, and doing it twice, as we mentioned. But in a garden situation, you're far better off with soaker hoses or a sprinkler. And if you're depending on an automatic irrigation system, don't have them set up to go on, you know, every other day for 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, that's a prescription for every fungal disease in the book, whether you're watering a lawn or whether you're watering vegetables. And it dampens the soil down to maybe two inches, maybe three inches. 
So you end up with weaker plants with shallow roots and, you know, possibility of fungal problems. Thank you for reinforcing that, too. It makes me crazy when I see sprinkler systems going off 15 minutes a day. It well, just you makes know, me nuts. Yes, yes. And we have to remember that the people who are installing those systems, by and large, are not gardeners. They are plumbers. And I'm not, they know their equipment. I'm not, you know, faulting them uh, about knowing their equipment. But what they don't understand is what plants need. And, and oftentimes, you know, they think that because the system has the capacity to come on every day, that it should be coming on every day. And just the opposite is true. Um, you know, unless you have rainforest plants that have adapted to a daily soaking at 4 p.m., which is what happens in the rainforest, uh, then by all means do that daily soaking at 4 p.m. on rainforest plants. But if you look at those plants, they all have leaves that are thick and waxy and designed to just shed that water right down, right? But we don't, most of us have rainforest plants in our garden. We're growing tomatoes and beans and squash and all those things we love to eat, and as well as the, the flowers we love to pick. And those plants are not adapted to a daily soaking, and so we need to deliver, you know, that deep soaking less often. Okay, we have to take a quick break right now, but we'll be back right after this. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Gerald Pullis, and this week I'm talking to C.L. Fornari, author of Coffee for Roses and 70 Other Misleading Myths About Backyard Gardening. And right before the break, we were talking about watering myths, and I am so glad to have you say that because people, so often people don't water correctly. And if you have very sandy soil, like a, if you're gardening on a sand spit in Florida, mm. yeah, you have to water more often. But most of us don't. We have clay soil or we have loam soil, and mm-hmm. it's a whole different ball game. Sure. And if you just go out there and take a trowel or a shovel after you've watered and see how far down the water has gotten, yeah. you can tell whether it's just on the surface or whether it's gotten way down to the root zone where it's, where it's going to be needed. That's right. That's that's very good advice because, you know, particularly with automatic irrigation systems, people look and they see the top of the soil damp and they assume that their plants have gotten a good deep watering. But it's helpful to go out with that trowel, not only, you know, and and even dig in a couple of different areas because one area might be getting the drift from a sprinkler and so it looks like it is being watered. But then when you dig down, you see that it really hasn't gotten much at all. And that can often answer people's question about why, well, I have three shrubs growing in this area, and two of them are really looking good, and one is so much smaller and not doing well. 
Well, it could be that that one, you know, that isn't doing as well is just not getting as much water that, you know, you're assuming that it is. So we should never assume when it comes to anything in life, I guess, is, is the, the take-home message in the garden and out of the garden. My friend Walter Reeves, who does a radio show here in Georgia, um, recommends collecting tuna fish cans or cat food cans or something like that and then putting them around in your garden before you irrigate and then seeing how much, it, whether it's all even and how much water you've collected in the cans when you're done. That's, that's good advice, except people should never assume that an inch of water in a tuna can or a cottage cheese carton is the same as an inch of rain because an inch of rain is a cubic inch that has fallen on a square inch of ground. And that's why when you see a rain gauge, if, if the rain gauge has an opening that is the size of a, of a square inch, right, you will see that the inch measurement on the rain gauge is an actual inch. But if you have a rain gauge with a larger opening, you will notice that that one-inch mark is maybe two or three inches up the gauge. And that's because the larger opening is letting more rain in, and it's no longer measuring how much rain fell on the square inch, if you get my meaning. And so a tuna can has maybe a four-inch opening, right? And so an inch of water in that tuna can is equivalent to about a quarter of an inch of rain. And so people are, you know, it's, it's not just the, the, the height of the water, but an inch of rain is that cubic inch falling on a square inch of soil. So I'm, I'm a real fan of rain gauges because it measures the rainfall very accurately and, um, it also tells us when we don't need to water because most of our established plants, if Mother Nature delivers an inch of rain measured in a rain gauge in a 24-hour period, that's all those plants need for the next seven days. So that can tell us that we don't have to haul out the hoses and turn on that, that uh, uh, sprinkler system. Okay. Um, what other myths do you run across all the time? I think the one, when I was working for Extension, the one I heard most was marigolds. Plant marigolds next to your tomatoes to repel nematodes. Yes. Well, and my husband and I have, have planted marigolds in the garden, you know, for years because we were told that marigolds repel bugs. And, and that, that myth comes from one study that was done in the South on nematodes, harmful nematodes in the soil, where the marigolds, the, there were various fields planted with various plants, including one field planted with marigolds, in that case the signet marigolds with the little tiny flowers. And at the end of the season, the, the crop, whatever it was, was tilled into the soil, and the next season the soil tested for the presence of nematodes. And the field that had been planted with those tiny marigolds had the lower population of nematodes. From that one study came the belief that just growing marigolds in the garden repels bugs from the garden. I, I liken this to the, the party game of telephone where one person starts by whispering something in the next person's ear and then it's passed around, whispered from ear to ear, and by the end of the, you know, the line it comes out completely different. <laughs> 
And we've been playing telephone with marigolds and vegetable gardens for years. Uh, is there any harm in planting marigolds in the garden? Absolutely not. And, you know, once I broke the news to my husband that this was a myth, that these weren't keeping insects away from our plants, he said, well, at this point, it's traditional. <laughs> so, so we still plant marigolds in our garden because at this point, it's traditional. And to me, the smell of marigold foliage and tomato foliage and basil foliage, that's synonymous with summer, you know, so we're always going to do it. But I'm, I'm not looking for my marigolds to provide insect control. No, I like them just because they're pretty. They're pretty, and they make, you know, and I use the petals, um, you know, to garnish salads. They're edible. Uh, so there's, there's every reason to grow marigolds in your vegetable garden, but the reason is not for bug, bug repelling. Good. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> now, let's talk about some myths that are harmful. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the big ones, the, the one that really disturbs me is, is put, to put mothballs out to repel, uh, you know, critters. And people still do this. Mothballs are poison. They are poison to people. They are, you know, that's throwing poisons out into the environment for no reason. Uh, first of all, it doesn't really work. We're, we're sort of thinking that because we don't like the smell, the animals aren't going to like the smell. So that's number one. Second of all, uh, if you do want to use something that has an odor that repels animals, by all means, don't use mothballs. You know, use something like a, a paper towel soaked with ammonia. Uh, you know, if you want to put that under your porch to get the skunks to move out, okay. But um, mothballs are problematic out in the environment. And I have personally seen a crow fly into my yard and drop a mothball in my yard that it had picked up somewhere else, right? Somebody had thrown them out, and it had picked this mothball up. Well, where, you know, first of all, I don't want crows carrying that poison around. Number one, I like my crows. Number two, uh, where is that crow going to drop it? Is it likely to drop it where a small child could pick it up, you know? So this is a dangerous practice, and, and we really need to um, get a grip on ourselves here. <laughs> and I don't know I don't know where that one even got started because it doesn't really repel moths very well unless it's in a closed container. Yes, um, the closed containers. And, and well, uh, the, the poisons do poison moth larvae in a closed container. And how the, the smelly things work for moths, from my understanding, is that they prevented the moths from smelling wool. So that's how cedar, for example, came to be used as cedar chests, is that when you have something with a heavy odor, it disguised the smell of the wool for the moth. So yeah, that, makes, that makes a little bit of sense. But I agree. Keep the mothballs someplace else, preferably in the store. Don't buy them. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> don't, don't, and certainly don't use them around plants, pets, people. That's uh, right. Anything like that. If for a while there, here in Georgia, there was a folk, a folk medicine guy that used to advocate putting mothballs up in your attic to repel squirrels, mothballs and, and sulfur. And some people would put so many mothballs up there that it would make them very, very sick. 
Yes, the fumes, the fumes from mothballs are hazardous. It truly is a poison, and it's a poison for people. Even the fumes off your clothes that have been stored in an enclosed thing with mothballs are dangerous. So it's, it's a serious, mothballs are serious things, and, uh, you know, we, we accept that some things are not good for us, and we need to accept that mothballs are not good for us. So, yeah. Okay. Now, what about something that is hazardous to plants, or can be, and hazardous to the soil, but not to people particularly? Well, um, you know, maybe, uh, first of all, and there are a lot of household products or kitchen products that people are tempted to throw out into the garden. And, um, you know, this, this goes back to linking one thing that we know, a garden problem, with another thing that we know, a household product, and thinking that, that might, there might be a connection there. And uh, that can be harmful because, first of all, something like uh, dish detergents, for example. Dish detergents contain not only detergent but all kinds of other additives. And some of those additives can be bad for plants or they can make plants more photosensitive sensitive. And so, you know, we really should not be making up home brews out of things that we don't really know what those ingredients will do to our plants or to the environment. Pure soap, fine, but dish detergent is not pure soap. You know, you would have to get you know, something that is pure soap, Fells naphtha soap, for example. Um, if you want to use that in the garden. So that's, that's one thing, I think, is that not throwing out, you know, just any household product or drugs. You know, there was some, some gardener once that was talking about using birth controls out in the garden. You know, I mean, birth <laughs> control pills. How ridiculous is that? You know, first of all, that somebody's going to go and get a prescription for birth control pills from their doctor and spend good money on it. In, in, and put it out in the landscape? I mean, how ridiculous. And not to mention the fact that medicines, you know, again, do you, you know where those hormones from birth control pills are going, putting them out in the landscape? You know, it's just uh, we need to go for first for garden products that are intended for gardens to use them according to directions and to even look at those with a critical eye, you know, and and think about the fact that everything is connected to everything else. And, you know, the, those four, four rules of ecology, everything is connected to everything else. Everything has to go somewhere. Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And nature knows best. Those are the four rules, and we have to look at everything we do in the garden through those eyes. I think people are very often tempted to jump the gun as soon as they see uh, what they perceive as a problem, and then they go out yeah. there and, and reach for something to spray instead of investigating it. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but we have to take a short break right now. I'd like to remind everybody that you can find us on Facebook, and you can contact us through the through this um, show's website, and you can write to me from com as well. We'll be right back after this. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. 
personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking to C.L. Fornari, author of Coffee for Roses and 70 Other Misleading Myths About Backyard Gardening. And right before the break, we were talking about some of the household products that people use that can get them in a real lot of trouble or that are dangerous for the environment or both. One of the things that I've seen recently on one of our Facebook gardening lists is for just about everything, people are recommending mixing up Epsom salt and water and spraying it on their plants. Yeah, you know, that's that's one that drives me absolutely wild because if you ask the average person, you know, who's posting that on Pinterest or whatever, what Epsom salt is, they won't be able to tell you. They don't know that it's magnesium. The next question that you might ask those people is, do you have a magnesium deficiency in your soil? They don't know. So, so they're basically throwing a lot of one element uh, on their plants and in their soil. And that can throw everything else off. I, I think that we all need to remember that uh, natural processes are, are pretty complicated. And soil is complicated. You know, there are a lot of elements that need to be in balance and working together. And if you get too much of any one thing, whether it's potassium or phosphorus or magnesium or boron or, you know, if you're high in any one thing, it can make the other elements unavailable to plants. So putting those Epsom salts on your garden, if you don't know that you need magnesium, might just be causing you far more problems than you think you're solving. And um, it's just, you know, just not, not good for plants. Thank you for reminding people about getting a soil test. It's one of the big deals that, that I harp on a lot for people because if you don't know what you have in your soil already, you don't know what to add. And it can cause pollution, particularly in the case of phosphorus, getting yeah. into groundwater and the streams and causing all sorts of damage um, and people throwing like the Epsom salts and the boron. Now, in my garden, we our soil test does show that we need um, both uh, all calcium and magnesium and uh, boron, but the amounts are quite small. With boron, I think it's a teaspoon per 10-foot a row. Yes, yes, it's very small. They're, you know, there's some of these, they call them micro, micronutrients for a reason, don't they? Yes, yes, very micro, very micro. Now, when we're talking about, since I mentioned fertilizer, um, a lot of people think they have to fertilize their garden every year, don't they? Well, they do. And, you know, all of this, whether it comes from, you know, grabbing the Epsom salts or, or, or f- fertilizing, it does come from a positive place in people, I think. Uh, we want to help, right? We want to help. We want our gardens to do well. And so that's the impulse, is to help our gardens to do well. But um, on the 
other hand, we need to look at how nature grows plants. And in the woods and the fields, there's no little fertilizer fairy that's out there sprinkling fertilizer in the spring and in the fall. And so, you know, how nature grows plants is the organic matter rots from the top down, and that's what provides the nutrients. You know, the leaves fall in the woods and they rot, and they, the earthworms and the little uh, insects and the beetles pull it down into the soil, and the roots that have died in the soil rot, and, and all of that adds nutrients to the soil. And we gardeners need to take a hint that maybe, first of all, organic matter is probably, you know, a good thing and that we should, since we clean up our gardens, we should be putting some compost or compost manure back. And we also need to take a hint from nature that that doesn't mean that we need to add, uh, you know, eight inches of compost a year because nature actual the amount of organic matter added every year to soils is fairly small once it starts to break down and also we need to you know approach fertilizing with a, maybe a little bit more you know lean hand or, or be a little bit more judicious about it that that's not the go-to response and and that's where people go is that they say my plant isn't doing well. What kind of fertilizer should I put on? And that may or may not be what the plant needs. You know, fertilizer certainly makes plants grow well, but that's not the go-to response for solving every problem, number one. And number two, as you say, we need that soil test to let us know what's there, first of all, before we add anything to the ground. It always used to make me wonder when you'd see people out there fertilizing their shrubs and everything first thing in the spring, and then two weeks later they're out there pruning the heck out of them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, we do that. We, we, we plant our plants. We, we oftentimes give them, you know, more water than they need, and we fertilize them to make them grow as big as they possibly can, right? And then we wonder why our foundation plantings are growing up over the windows, and so then we're pruning them to fight their size because they've grown too big. <laughs> Human beings are very contrary. That's right. And, and as I say, it all comes from that good part of us. We want to help, right? We want to help them out. And so, um, and, and, you know, it's not that fertilizer is always bad. It really is not. Um, I fertilize many plants, uh, particularly, you know, I, I fertilize, uh, we use organic fertilizers um, exclusively in our vegetable garden, and um, it does help annual plants that have a short season to grow and do their thing. It helps them be productive. But on the other hand, you know, we need to, as I say, always remember what nature is doing with plants and emulate, you know, how nature gardens as much as possible. Yeah. You make a point, good point that um, vegetable gardening does tend to need a little bit more fertilizer because the plants are in and doing their thing just in one growing season. They're not there right. over the long haul. And That's it's particularly right. important that people keep their fertilizer fairly even when they're growing in containers because most containers are soilless mixes. They have no nutrients in them. Right, right. Yeah. 
Do you see people a lot in lots of um, instructions in gardening books that say dig a hole and throw in your fertilizer? Yes, yes. Well, that, you know, I was taught that. I was taught that when I planted a perennial, I should dig the hole and throw some uh, superphosphate or some, you know, (laughs) what we Mm -hmm. now know as a pollutant in. Um, The problem, of course, is people don't think that the roots don't stay in that hole. They grow well beyond that area. So, number one, if if you're throwing fertilizer in that hole, the roots are soon going to be growing beyond where that fertilizer is anyway. And again... Nature's fertilizing from the top down. Maybe we need to, you know, copy that and fertilize when we do fertilize a large area from the top down as as Mother Nature does it. We could learn an awful lot from that old lady, couldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, for you know, whenever I'm trying to figure out something in the garden, that's what I go to first. You know, if I'm trying to figure out a problem that I see or a way to approach my gardens, I, I first think about, all right, how does nature do this? You know, how does, how does nature cope with disease? How does nature deal with insect problems, right? And, and to, to have that be your go-to solution first before you know, approaching something with our instant fix mentality, which, you know, we humans love instant fix. And uh, sometimes we can, we can, that's a way we get in ourselves in trouble in the garden. Yeah. And people, I don't think, understand that an awful lot of garden problems are caused by environmental conditions. Too much rain, too little rain, yeah. um, plants too crowded together, humidity way high. Uh, right, poor subsoil drainage. You know, a plant can look really sick if its roots are dying because it's standing in water. Sure, sure. Yeah, and that's that's a very good point because we often, we, we look at what's going on above the ground, but because we don't have x-ray glasses, we can't see what's going on below the ground, and so sometimes we forget to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Speaking about things in the ground, how about, I'm sure that some of our listeners have heard um, plant a nail with your hydrangea to make it blue? Yes, there. Well, there are several. You know, the one that's making the rounds right now on Pinterest. It's it's not in in Coffee for Roses, but it's making the rounds now. Is is put pennies in the ground for making hydrangeas blue. Then there's the rusty nails. That's that that one is in my book. Um, and and then some people, you know, there are all kinds of metal. People are throwing metal <laughs> into their their plants. It, it comes from from the misunderstanding about what makes hydrangeas blue. Hydrangeas are turned blue by the aluminum that is naturally in our soils. Most of us have plenty of, of aluminum, but what allows the plant to take it up is growing in acidic soil. And so, you know, most of us have plenty of aluminum, but if your soil is alkaline, your hydrangeas are going to turn pink. If your soil is acidic your hydrangeas are going to be blue. Now, where, where I am on Cape Cod, we do nothing. Our hydrangeas are blue because we have naturally acid soils. And that's the case here, too. Um, when we used to do soil tests, the first year I did soil tests, um, the pH was about 5. And there when you I go. was working for extension, I would sometimes, I saw a couple of them come back as 4.4. Mm-hmm. It's practically vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and you know, and so in those, you know, nobody has to work if they if they have a pH of soil five. You and and as I say, most there it doesn't take a lot of aluminum in the soil to turn a hydrangea blue. And so, uh, if you know that your soil is acidic, don't worry. You know, just worry about keeping that hydrangea well hydrated, and it'll be blue. So, but but on on the other hand, sometimes people are liming their lawn. And when they apply that lime, it gets kicked into their flower beds. And so if their hydrangea is turning pink, that's a good place to look. Am I liming the lawn? The other good place to look if a hydrangea is turning pink and you think that you normally have acidic soils is if that hydrangea is growing near a foundation or a cement walkway because uh, both cement foundations and cement walkways leach into the soil and leach lime into the soil and and sweeten soils over time. And so that can be another reason that a hydrangea might turn pink. That's a good thing for people to know because I think very often, especially with new construction, people don't realize how much is washing off. And that goes for washing off into your vegetable garden, too. I had a client that had uh, put in a sidewalk, and they planted a garden, vegetable garden right along the sidewalk, mm-hmm. and they had real problems with it because there was so much lime leaching out of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, we, we need to consider not only the soil uh, that we have where we're growing, whether it's vegetables or hydrangeas, but what's happening around that area as well. Is it, you know, below a slope? Is the rain washing that lawn fertilizer down or the other assorted lawn products? Uh, is it, you know, is it next to a road and have things been applied to the road? So whatever's going on around uh, a garden can influence it and we can see results. So. Uh, I always ask people, well, what's happened around that plant? Has the house been power washed recently? Those sort of things. We just always need to keep that in mind. That's all the time we have for today. But we'll be back talking more gardening next week on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. And I will put all of CL's information up on our Facebook page so that you'll have all of that. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.